this week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. The, the, the message has been unmistakable from his campaign to his actions and then, you know, to his duplicity in telling people that the border is secure. I mean, they this is what they want. I mean, remember when this deal was announced, there were several people in the Democratic Party who were mad that it was, well, you can't slow down the people coming here. We need to get people here more quickly. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And the gang is back together here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is here, Courtney Yap Norris is here, Jared Crawford is here, and look who we have back all the way from, I don't, what, what, is the, what is the phrase for, is it Big Sky Country in Montana, Sean Southern? Yes, that's correct. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing a, a piece of your big sky with us. We're so we're just excited to see you. Welcome back. It's good to see you all. A bunch of friends. The gang's all back together. Tell us where you are, what you're doing. So uh, as of two weeks ago, I picked up in a U-Haul and moved to Helena, Montana. And uh, I'm uh, currently serving as the governor of Montana's communications director, Governor Gianforte. So uh, we've had a Great time, hit the ground running here in Helena, uh, getting to know everybody, getting to know the town, and uh, maybe m- m- most interest to our listeners, uh, just got back from a trip to Eagle Pass at the border. Uh, where so you, I, you're, you're, you know all about the all uh, the debate that's going on in our country right now. You've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. I saw uh, where people are trying to cross right there at the Rio Grande, and uh, got to hear an update directly from Governor Abbott. Uh, and uh, the uh, about 14 governors, Republican governors, appeared down there together and held a press conference uh, to talk about uh, the, the problems at the border and how Governor Abbott and Operation Lone Star is working to secure our border. In fact, my, my boss, uh, Governor Greg Gianforte, had this to say. Thank you, Governor. And let me start by saying Montana stands with Texas in this fight. The governors here have repeatedly called on the Biden administration to step up and do their job. Most recently, in a joint letter, we asked for the names and identities of people that have crossed illegally into this country. That request was met with silence. It came on top of a letter that shared a 10-point plan to secure the border. That was three years ago. We're still waiting for a response from the White House. Montana has had our soldiers here on the southern border for most of last year. And Governor Abbott, we're committed to stand with you and continue to provide resources so that we can protect the citizens of the United States and our country. And so, as you can see, I mean, this really is a lot of the Republican governors are coming together uh, to say that what Greg Abbott is doing is the right thing, has been able to secure the border. They've been able to take an average of 3,000 illegal crossings a day at that area at Shelby Park at Equal Pass and get it down to three. And so they have massive success down there doing what uh, Governor Abbott has put in place. And so it's uh, been a really incredible experience so far for me to get to already travel the country and kind of be in one of the, the nation's uh, uh, hot debates going on right now. Well, Sean, you, uh, you are seeing up close people who are doing their jobs, governors uh, like Governor Abbott and yours and others. And, in the meantime, the rest of us are observing people who aren't doing their jobs, chiefly the people in Washington, D.C., <laughs> who can't uh, who can't seem to figure it out. The border deal, Joe and team, has collapsed. 
And uh, as we record this on Thursday morning at 8 a.m., doesn't Wednesday. seem like uh, we don't have uh, – uh, there'll be a vote. I guess Schumer's going to put it on the floor, but the Republicans are going to vote against the deal that Lankford and, and uh, others worked out. So as it stands right now, it doesn't, doesn't seem like we're going to have any uh, enforcement changes, any policy changes, uh, no matter what happens to the future of the supplemental bill here, guys. My understanding is is the uh, the the union for the border patrol officers uh, actually backed this deal. Even they said it wasn't perfect, but that it was at least it's it's something, right? It it is uh it is it, it had an interesting set of bedfellows. It had Jim Langford of Oklahoma, who is one of the most conservative members of the Senate. It had Chris Murphy, uh, who's a Democrat, liberal Democrat. It had Kirsten Cinema, who's a little bit of a wild card from Arizona and obviously from a border state. It had Joe Biden and Alexander Mayorkas, who have exactly 0.0% credibility with Republicans. Uh, And then it had the border union, who, of course, endorsed Donald Trump in 2020. And they largely, I think, prefer his style of leadership on this topic. So it it did have an interesting set of bedfellows. But by the time the text came out and the whole thing developed, this thing was already on its way to defeat uh, because uh, Donald Trump uh, does not want this bill to pass. I think, you know, and, and look, just from a raw political calculation, they're asking themselves, why would we throw Joe Biden a life raft here? He's drowning on this issue. All the polling shows it. The American people think he has failed. So why would we bail him out of the problem that he's made uh, when this when this can help us win the election? The counter argument to that is, well, The Republican Party has convinced the American people that this is a crisis, that this is an invasion, that Joe Biden has failed, and that some new law uh, are required to force him uh, to effectively close the border and stop this insane process, uh, parole and asylum that he's using to bring in hundreds of thousands of people into the country every month. Courtney, wouldn't this be an example, though, of an opportunity for as far as brinksmanship in Congress? I mean, you've, you've gotten the Democrats to the point of basically accepting the premise of what Republicans and conservatives have been arguing. I mean, and you, at this point, I mean, they, they've, they're to the point where they're going to compromise on these, these, these main points. I don't think people are going to see this as a win for Biden if they passed it. I think that's why Trump doesn't want it, but I don't think that the American people know for the last three and a half years that Biden has been president and then he has done nothing but welcome people with open arms to this country. Um, I don't, I don't think if they pass, it's going to be a win. But, I mean, that's kind of a moot point now. It's, it's dead in the water. You know, this, this bill was probably, we should, she should have known it was dead as soon as Joe Biden became the first and principal cheerleader for it. I mean, he needed to be, he needed to appear as though he had been dragged into this kicking and screaming to get Republicans to trust it. But when he came out and said, this is the toughest bill that's ever been passed and we have to get tough on the border, it just... You know, I mean, it. Th- there is no faith from any Republican that Joe Biden wants to get tough on the border, given all that he's done or didn't do for the last three years, given all that he's ever said on the topic. I mean, remember, I wrote about this in the Daily Mail today. Remember, he started his campaign by promising free health care to illegal immigrants. That was one of the first promises he made. Then when he got in office on day one, he reversed all of Donald Trump's border provisions. And for the last three years, he and his team Vice President Harris, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, Mayorkas have all repeatedly told the American people the border is secure. So it, they have been nothing but liars 
and absolute scoundrels on this topic. And now we're supposed to believe them when they say, well, we have the solution to get tough. So the fact that Biden became a cheerleader for it killed. I mean, it killed it with Republicans and obviously killed it with Donald Trump. And and uh, and, and it, it led me to conclude, uh, Joe, in my piece, Biden never actually wanted to pass a bill. He wanted to give the appearance that he wanted to pass a bill. But all he ever really wanted to do was for this process to fail so that the migrants continue to flow. But then he can say, I'm going to blame the Republicans, Jared, which is exactly what he did in his speech yesterday. Let's hear from the president. I'm calling on Congress to pass this bill. Get it to my desk immediately. But if the bill fails, I want to be absolutely clear about something. The American people are going to know why it failed. I'll be taking this issue to the country. And the voters are going to know that it's not just a moment. Just at the moment, we're going to secure the border and fund these other programs. Trump and the MAGA Republicans said no, because they're afraid of Donald Trump. (laughs) Afraid of Donald Trump. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine, to make it clear to the American people that you work for them, not for anyone else. I know who I work for. I work for the American people. Moments like this, we have to remember who in God's name we are. <clears throat> We're the United States of America. You've heard me say it many times. There's nothing beyond our capacity if we do it together. We're right on the verge of doing it together. I hope, I hope and pray they find reason to reconsider blowing this up. So, Joe, is anyone going to buy this is the question. Is anyone going to really believe that after three years of Joe Biden's failures, that it's actually the Republicans who want open borders? I think I think well, this as a political matter and dynamic matter in that. I mean, the, for the fact that obviously the well, number one, that Mayorkas was taking the lead on this in the first place when when obviously he was. Yes, the Republican, Republicans fell short of which was embarrassing of the impeachment vote uh, in the House. Uh, but but then beyond that, they have him be the lead on voice on that. And then Biden basically to chastise. I mean, you're going to chastise your way into a bill being becoming law. That's not going to happen. I mean, to your point, Scott, it, it was pretty clear that this was more about political points, in my opinion, from both sides here yeah. than, it, than it was about uh, about actually securing any kind of real reform. But the crazy thing is, Jared, is that I thought this was a crisis. I thought immigration, I mean, and, and Sean talked about it, too, in terms of the people pouring over the border. Now, they've had some success on the from the governor's standpoint and Greg Abbott with with throttling the, the flow from from one junction. But of course, it's the, is, isn't this a crisis? Yeah, that's why I, I'll sort of agree with Courtney when she said, you know, I don't think this would have been necessarily a win for Biden, because all like if you had to pick one word to sum up the Republicans in Congress over the last few years, it'd be like dysfunction. And this is just more dysfunction. It just seems like they can't pass anything. They can't get on the same page. I mean, even if this wasn't a perfect bill, it was just sort of like an incremental step in the right direction. I think it would have been better for them to say, like, look, this is how serious we're taking this. And maybe even try to call Biden's bluff on this. Again, I think you're right, Joe, that both sides were just trying to score political points. And the pressure from Donald Trump probably became too much for too many Republicans. But it just it ends up looking like another bad day for Republicans in Congress. 
And I mean, you know, for all Biden's sort of like MAGA Republicans or like that sort of posturing is silly. But again, they're the ones who failed again. Like Nothing really got to him. So I, I still think they look dysfunctional and continue to look like they are, you know, aren't on the same page more than anything else. And I do think that there's this sense amongst rank and file Republicans and, and even maybe some independents that, you know, is is a bill necessary given that what we've seen happen with Governor Abbott down in Texas be able to stop the and turn the tide right now because of what Abbott's done the cartels have effectively stopped trying to move people through these areas of Texas and are now trying to to send people through Arizona and through California and through New Mexico what do, what do all those places have in common blue state open borders governors and so I do think that there's this sense that whenever people think about this issue, that they think about, oh, this when Trump was in office, the policies were different and the result was different. Why, as Scott's noted here on this podcast before, but also on CNN, I mean, since day one, the president of the United States has flung the doors open and said, come on into this country. And he really hasn't done anything from his under his existing executive power to, to stem the tide. The, the the message has been unmistakable from his campaign to his actions and then, you know, to his duplicity in telling people that the border is secure. I mean, they this is what they want. I mean, remember when this deal was announced, there were several people in the Democratic Party who were mad that it was, well, you can't slow down the people coming here. We need to get people here more quickly. We need to get people here more quickly. We need to process their claims more quickly. We need to get them in the country. That's what they want. I mean, that that's their ultimate policy uh, solution is just to keep the doors open and uh, do the paperwork faster. But I think the American people are in a different spot. I think I think they think too many people are coming here too quickly. We don't know who they are. We don't know why they're here and that there has to be some way to throttle this down until we can get a handle on it. And so the question about whether the bill was good or not, there are conservatives who've raised questions. I think there are reasons you could oppose it. There are also reasons to support it, uh, principally the throttling back of the asylum and parole uh, uh, stuff that Biden, I think, has abused. But the question about whether you need a bill or not, to me, is muddy for the Republicans. Some people are saying we don't need a bill. Then why did the House Republicans pass H.R. 2, which is their immigration bill? So those are incongruous arguments. And if we can wait to do something, then why are we impeaching Mayorkas? If it's so bad and we that, that we have to impeach Mayorkas, then why are we waiting for a year on a presidential result that may or may not exist. So I, I feel like the Republicans actually have the upper hand on this as a polling matter, as a political matter. But they're putting it in jeopardy by making what some might consider to be incongruous arguments, um, you know, about about the topics. I, you know, I think politically, how's it going to play out? This is probably still a net negative for Biden, right, Courtney? I mean, the polling is so bad. It's like 70-30 bad on Biden. And so how I mean, I don't I just don't know how that they're ever going to convince, you know, any, you know, person with a half a brain cell that it's somehow the Republicans who want open borders and not Joe Biden. I mean, that it's just not going to work. No, I what was so surprising to me was the White House press secretary recorded a video for, you know, the Instagram, the social medias for the White House. They're in Las Vegas, I'm assuming for the Super Bowl, I guess. I don't know. And use the words that the that the Congress kicked the can down the road on this issue. <laughs> and I just 
it's just comical that she spent like a whole minute talking about how this is not the White House's fault, that this has been an issue for decades. And I'm just, it's just comical that she would think that the American people are going to buy this. The the other thing too for uh, Democrats on this issue is they, they used to sort of poll better because the conversation used to be more about a path to citizenship. And I think most Americans sort of believe in that and that you, if you want to come here and, and have a better life for your family and, you know, join the military or start a business and pay taxes, like we, we believe in that. But fentanyl has changed this conversation. The The border conversation is different now because of how deadly this issue has become, right? It used to be about, you know, families wanting to come here and, and pursue the American dream. And so there was this sense of like, okay, more is better. And who should we deny that to? The open flow of drugs across this border at record highs and record deaths is, has completely changed this conversation. And so to to sort of think of it in the terms of like even a decade ago and the way like Democrats messaged on this, I think they're losing because they sort of are still talking like everybody who's showing up or everybody who's crossing just wants a better life. And that's just not the case anymore. Fentanyl has completely changed this conversation. And Sean, way, for so, you working for a working for a governor, I mean, this is what the governors are dealing with, right? I mean, this is actually, this is ultimately the main problem is public safety in a state. You're not on the border, but you certainly get the ramifications of it. Yes, absolutely. So for the the DEA region that oversees the, the area that Montana is in, in 2023, they confiscated more than three million fentanyl pills last year alone, a 78 percent increase from the year prior, and so. Um, when you're dealing with this influx, you, you as a governor are in a position to actually do something from a public safety standpoint. You have resources. You've got National Guard. You've got law enforcement tools at your disposal. And so what we've seen from these Republican governors who, who again, about 14 of them, ranging from Brian Kemp in Georgia, uh, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, to, to my boss, uh, and, and to, to others, including, you know, Spencer Cox in Utah and Chris Sununu uh, of New Hampshire. All these governors are dealing with this rise in fentanyl uh, in their states. And so I, I think what this this experience has shown is that governors do have the ability, unlike D.C., to actually move resources and get things done quicker. Uh, and so but again, this is ultimately a job for the federal government. It's these states, these governors are having to step up to do Joe Biden's job uh, because he refuses to do so. Keep in mind that. They, they were, he was using customs and border control to destroy barriers at the border <laughs> a few weeks ago. They, they, sued, it, they, it, they remember they they sued Arizona. Remember when Arizona put up the containers as a yeah. wall, and they sued Arizona to move the containers. And then, of course, we know what he did in Texas. It's it's pretty amazing to hear Donald or to hear Joe Biden today say, "I'm ready to get tough on the border." When his own government is in court trying to stop Arizona and Texas. From getting tough on the border. I mean, it, it just shows how hollow all this is. I'm a big fan of pragmatism. And unfortunately, I think we've had the, the, the death of a lot of pragmatism this week in Washington, D.C. But conversely, uh, Sean, certainly the success of it, when, when you look at what the governor's uh, collective you know, have been able to do in terms of actually making real progress there. I guess as a political matter, Scott, uh, the one thing that Republicans well, I think the facts finally just demanded this to be uh, uh, ad admitted by the Biden administration. But as Jerry pointed out a moment ago, up until this point, there was no crisis at the border officially. 
right? Yeah. I mean, there was a situation to say, oh no, this is all, this is all just being, this is all just a, a political, you know, uh, tempest in a teapot. You're, you're making a too big of nothing. This is all about real people and et cetera. But all that said, I mean, I guess as a political matter, have we, have we moved the goalposts or have we, have we moved the, uh, the understanding of where the facts are? I mean, are, are, as a country, do we all acknowledge now this is a crisis? Oh, I, I think I think Donald Trump and the Republicans deserve enormous credit for moving this conversation to the right. I mean, there's no question the Republicans have won the public debate. I mean, look at all the polling. I mean, people it's now it's like the number one issue or two, one or two in, in most swing states. Um, you've got Biden so far underwater on it. It's one of his worst topics. And you've got a lot of people out there who, who really do think we ought to close the border down until we get a handle on the flow and the drugs. There's no question this has moved to the right. So the so the Republicans have won the debate. The question is now, what are they going to do about it? And they tried to do something on this legislation. It's collapsed. The only thing left to do now is win the campaign and try to do something when you take over. The problem is going to be there will not be 60 Republican votes in the Senate, even if Trump wins. And uh, so, so, you, so you, you had this moment here where you sort of drug the other side in your direction and now this is going to come and go. I'm I'm worried we're not going to be able to get this moment back after Trump wins. And, and even if Republicans control all three legs of the stool, which is possible, if you don't have 60 in the Senate, you can't do anything. And I don't think Democrats are going to want to give this kind of ground to Donald Trump, even though they were willing to give it uh, for Joe Biden here recently. Well, the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, was able to get this this cobble together. And uh, and prepared for an actual vote. But uh, as it turns out, uh, some Republicans in the Senate refuse to take yes for an answer. Let's hear from the Senate Republican leader afterward. Senator Ted Cruz had a press conference around noon today, said that you shouldn't have, have even tried to negotiate with Democrats, said this bill was designed to fail and that it's time for you to step down as GOP leader. What's your response to that? I think we can all agree that Senator Cruz is not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) The president came out and he pointedly put the blame on Donald Trump. He said it is Donald Trump's is to blame for the failure of this bill. Was Trump's opposition too much for you to overcome? Well, I've said repeatedly every month I'm not going to get into comments about the race for the presidency among Republicans. I think in the end, even though the product is approved by the the Border Council that endorsed President Trump, most of our members feel that we're not going to be able to make a law here. And if we're not going to be able to make a law, they're reluctant to go forward. There are other parts of this supplemental that are extremely important as well. Ukraine. Israel, Taiwan, we still, in my view, ought to tackle the rest of it because it's important. Not that the border isn't important, but we can't get an outcome. So that's where I think we ought to head. It's up to Senator Schumer to decide how to repackage this if, in fact, we don't go on to it. So coming out of this now, Joe, um, what happens now? I mean, this was a part of the supplemental. So they were going to, in the Senate, the theory was we'll do border, Israel, Ukraine all together, try to get the vote. So that's not going to happen. Schumer, again, we're recording this on Wednesday before they do it. Schumer's going to put the 
the deal on the floor that will fail. Then he's going to put the deal on the supplemental on the floor without the border provisions. And we'll see what Republicans do with that over in the house. Uh, uh, Speaker Johnson put a bill on the floor to fund Israel only. It came up well short. So I don't know. I talked to a well-placed Senate insider last night who said, you know, it may be that we're able to get, get the supplemental done this week without the border and send it over to the house. So I, I don't know. I, I, as we sit here, I don't know where this is headed. I mean, there are different groups in the Congress that have different priorities. Uh, there is, a, uh, I think, a bipartisan majority of Congress that wants to do Ukraine. And I do think there's a bipartisan majority that wants to do Israel. So it strikes me if, that, if those two conditions are true, they will finally and ultimately get there. But what will be disappointing to a lot of conservatives is, well, how did we fund Ukraine, but we didn't send any funding to the border? And that's going to be a, you know, that's going to be a, a, a political knot to unravel on the back end of all this. All right, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Flyover Country. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Well, it's it's a, I guess it's the latest example of, as I said a moment ago, sort of the death of pragmatism. I mean, if if you have an opportunity to actually get something done, this is all happening, Scott, against the backdrop of what else is happening in D.C. The D.C. Circuit and Donald Trump, um, th- them ruling that he is not immune from prosecution. It seems to me, and Scott, I'll ask you. I mean, Donald Trump is hanging on. It, he needs to win this presidency, you know, just to es- escape prosecution. So, in, in, in many ways. His infiltration in this argument is as much about his own skin than it is about conservative uh, principles or, or goals. Well, it's about an individual case. He's argued that because he was the president, he should have absolute immunity and that the president needs immunity in order to execute the job. The D.C. Circuit disagreed with that. I suspect the Supreme Court will rule against that unanimously, which then opens the door for his trial on January the 6th to move forward. Uh, which it had was slated to start in March, and now we don't know. In the NBC News survey that came out on Sunday, this past Sunday, he was leading Joe Biden by five points. When people asked the question, though, if he's convicted of a felony, what will you do? Then Biden was ahead of Trump by two points. So you can see that his actually being tried and convicted, at least according to the polling, <laughs> might be the only thing that could save Joe Biden right now, everything else is pointing in the wrong direction. Every issue, direction of the country, how people feel about the economy, how about whether Biden is mentally fit. Only 23 percent of the NBC survey said he was fit for office mentally. And that's today, let alone four more years. So what happens in these court cases and ultimately what happens in the courtroom and in the jury room may be the most determinative thing. So that's going on. And then on Thursday, we're going to get arguments about whether Trump can stay on the ballot. And I'll actually have to go to Washington and be part of special coverage for that. But I think he's going to win this. I think he's going to win this. But there was an interesting thought exercise presented to me this week. Politico asked me to write a piece about 
Uh, well, what if the Supreme Court threw Trump off the ballot? Like, what would be the aftermath of that? And so a whole bunch of us got asked to write <laughs> what would happen. I I concluded that it would be like the end of the original Ghostbusters movie, uh, but in every state capitol and in every county clerk's office in America. I mean, I, I think, I just don't think the Republican Party would respect the decision. I think the Republican Party would, would still put Trump on the ballot. I think Republican secretaries of state would put him on the ballot. I think in states that have Democrats in charge, there would be massive write-in campaigns to elect Trump. And then there'd be huge fights at boards of elections about whether to count those write-in votes. I, I think it would be, I, I think there would be open defiance of the Supreme Court. And I think this because just the other day, Joe Biden himself tweeted regarding his student loan scheme, the Supreme Court blocked me, but that didn't stop me. Now that sentence, I think, would be regurgitated in this case by Republicans to say, if Joe Biden doesn't have to listen to the Supreme Court, why do we? And you know what? I think they'd have a pretty good public argument for it. So I think it'd be mass chaos. I don't know. Some people were positing that, well, maybe Nikki Haley would get it then. Like, no, that would not be the reaction of the Republican Party. Donald Trump gets thrown off the ballot and we put, you know, the avatar for never Trumpers in. No way. I don't know what you guys think. But it was it was a really interesting. I, you should read it. It's on Politico. But it was kind of an interesting study in how people were <laughs> trying to process the the idea that Trump might get tossed off. Well, I, I, of that, I think I read, do you, do you think that the Supreme court takes that into account when they're reviewing this case? I mean, do you think they're like, Oh, it's fine. If, if everything explodes and everybody has marshmallow all over them. <laughs> I think, well, they're human beings. I mean, how can they be immune from knowledge of the world around them? I think they, you know, I want to believe they take only the law into account, but here it's very murky. You know, there's, we don't really have a precedent for this too much. And so they're trying to deal with a unique situation. But I would think these people are not stupid. They must be aware, Sean, of what the world would look like should they remove. Remember, at this point, you're not removing like a gadfly. This guy's the leading candidate for president. He has a steady and persistent lead in the national public polls. So you would have the unelected branch of our government throwing the person leading in the polls off the ballot? I mean, there's no way. There's just, I just, I refuse to believe this is even within the realm of the 0.0001% possible, Sean. Well, the Roberts court has always been very careful about looking political. Like Roberts does not like to look political and, and inserting the court into the middle of one of the most divisive, what is to be expected to be one of the most divisive presidential campaigns uh in in our history is, does not seem like something that they would want to do uh just from a raw optics matter secondly i want to say is that i was um scrolling through twitter and i read this quote about the you know the comparison to ghostbusters and i was like that just sounds like scott jennings and then i <laughs> clicked up in the article and i was like gosh oh. dang <laughs> random pop culture references are us but yeah. i I'm trying to think what year that came out. Was that anywhere around 2000? Because that would, I guess it was before then, but I was the, the, uh, the Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters, Joe. <laughs> Is this going to be like one of those, are you going to tell me you've never seen this movie? Of course I've seen it. I've seen it many times. Oh. What what year was that? It's all the past, right? Anyway, <laughs> my point being is I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, I'm thinking about the election though of 2000 and the Supreme Court's, uh, and at a certain point when they've, 
stopped the back and the, the chads and everything else going back in, in Florida, it was because I think we're going to be the anti-chaos Supreme Court. At this point, they're going to step in to say, we just need to stop this because otherwise there will be no definitive end to this contest or to this to this election. So I, it seems to me there is a precedent in terms of the Supreme Court not introducing chaos, Scott. Well, yes, uh, I agree with you. Um, and I and I agree with Sean. I, I, I think they, they don't want to look political. This would be a, an uber political move to do this. Um, and I, I just it's just unthinkable to me. But something else happened on this front this week. J.D. Vance, senator from Ohio, told George Stephanopoulos that had he been vice president on January 6th, he would have just had all these states send two sets of electors and let the Congress sort it out. <laughs> and and so there's more to come on this. I don't know who's going to win. I really don't. I, I mean, Trump's ahead today. I, I don't know who's going to win. But there is so much more to come. And I suspect my point in, is it's going to wind up back in the Supreme Court again. And so ultimately, they may not be able to avoid uh, the perception of politics or that they had some definitive role in in deciding who won. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know, Jerry, what you think, but I, I, yeah. I feel like the court doesn't want to be responsible yeah. for this, but ultimately they, <laughs> they may be on the hook for it, whether they like it or not. Yeah. Not to be like the doom and gloom. I, I'm, I might be Joe for a little, for a minute here. My honest reaction to reading that article was like, I don't even know that it matters because I think we're headed towards lawsuits and, disaster and like no concessions like i i just i see 2024 being 2020 on steroids i mean hopefully the capital isn't breached again but i just like in terms of the sort of like struggle over what was right and what was wrong some blue state is going to do something stupid i mean it's just it's bound to happen pennsylvania won't count their votes for six weeks again and we're all like i just i'm already in like nightmare mode and so hopefully the supreme court doesn't add another layer to to what i think is going to be a contentious and and you know emotional election so i hope they stay out of it because again it, it it get the sense like from jd like they're both both sides truly and scott you've made this argument that we've been on this escalator of both sides sort of ramping up you know, uh, election denialism and all these things. I already hear all of the excuses from both sides. Kamala Harris started it years ago saying that it would be, you know, fraudulent if Trump was to win again. So oh, I, I, I think I, if Trump, I, I think if Trump wins, Democrats will oh, lose their mind. They'll immediately challenge it. They'll immediately yeah. concoct a reason why it would. Well, look, when he won before, they immediately concocted the canard that Russia stole the election. Yeah. I mean, that. They just they needed a narrative to explain it. And if Joe Biden loses to Donald Trump, there will need to be a new narrative. I don't know what it'll be. I I cannot conceive of it. But there will be a claim that Trump cheated or stole the election, that there was an intervention of some kind, et cetera, et cetera. And I I mean, by the way, I know Democrats who believe Trump could could sort of replicate what happened in 16, lose the popular vote and win the election. They're very worried about this. If that happens again, you can bank on it. Democrats will try to upend the result of this election. Absolute. Mm -hmm. Take it to the bank. I don't know. (laughs) Jared, thanks for taking over my despondency uh, because (laughs) that's pretty much where I am. I I, I mean, I'm as you're you're all discussing this. I'm just having these these nightmare scenarios 
of, um, you know, which electors we choose to send to, uh, to DC, you know, uh, yeah. what the, you know, the, the contest within each state about, well, yeah, the people may have voted that way, but we, we have to supersede that for what we think. And this could be either, either party. This could be either yeah. one of them. So, or, you know, saying this is going to be the case, depending upon who the governor and secretary of state is. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's what we've learned through this ballot thing is if, is if you've got a state with Democrats in positions of authority, they're willing to use their positions to try to stop people's votes from happening. I mean, that that's that's functionally when you're throwing Trump off the ballot in Colorado or Maine or whatever, that, that's what's happening. I mean, they they're trying to stop this election from occurring. So why wouldn't they try to stop the votes from being counted? Why wouldn't they stop? Why wouldn't they want to say, well, these votes were cast fraudulently? I mean, if you're willing to throw a guy off the ballot, why wouldn't you be willing to stop him from taking office if he won? So I, yeah, I, I don't know how many states it is where Trump could win, but there are Democrats in positions of authority over these levers. But Michigan, I, yeah, I guess uh, I guess the Midwest, right? Michigan, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, some of these places. So anyway, it's a it's a mess. Let me give you a quick quick sixty seconds on the uh, where I think the presidential campaign stands. South Carolina is coming up on February twenty fourth. Uh, looks to me like Donald Trump is rolling um, and. I don't see that Nikki Haley has done anything to slow him down yet. I don't know if anybody else has seen anything, but it feels like the Trump juggernaut continues to pick up speed. To me, the biggest news of the week was uh, broken last night in the New York Times and then others saying that Ronna McDaniel is apparently discussing with Trump stepping down as head of the Republican National Committee uh, after the South Carolina primary. Uh, this has been long rumored, or at least a shakeup at the RNC has been long rumored. The Trump people are not happy with Ronna. And uh, and we're thinking, I think, of layering her anyway with people. So we'll see how this develops. But uh, um, uh, we're going to have a shakeup at the National Party to to more match what the party's nominee wants, which, by the way, is not an unusual thing. It's not an unusual thing. And I, I found this news to be not all that surprising. Yeah, I don't know. I, I that is such a machination of the internal you know, po- politics. I mean, what difference does it make who the chair actually is, Scott? Well, the the party does have control of resources and it does have control of voter turnout processes and mechanisms that the presidential campaign and the whole party, but the presidential campaign uses and 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 puts to work. So uh, it, it does matter that the leadership of the party knows what it's doing and uh, executes the grassroots voter turnout functions as 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 expertly as it can. So, you know, there's a difference in any campaign when the party and the candidates work well together and when the party and the candidates don't work well together. And so ultimately what you're trying to get at is harmony uh, so that you have efficient expenditure of resources, you have uh, agreement on strategic choices and so on and so forth. So it, it does it does make a difference. I mean, a lot of money will flow through the building. A lot of if Trump wants it, a lot of money will and can flow through the building. And you want to if you're the running for president, you want to make sure that money is being spent the way you think it needs to be spent to best elect you. You mentioned that your Ghostbusters reference uh, in the uh, the the, the uh, Supreme Court decision coming up here because of I my my lack of memory in terms of what year that came out. I did look up what movies did come out in 2000. And it included, and it's the ones that are most appropriate for our conversation today are The Perfect Storm, The Patriot, and Castaway. 
So I think we put those those three together. It's kind of the way that that I feel. Who's gonna Who's gonna be the castaway here? Sean's kind of cast away in Montana right now. That's true. (laughs) Terrible. Well, uh, Tucker Carlson is cast away Uh, as we speak. As we've been recording this on Wednesday morning, the Kremlin, as Jared knows, I have a direct pipeline. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the Kremlin has. I knew, I'd say it before you're you actually it. let's be honest, Joe. The reason we're having to do this podcast remotely is not because I'm in Montana. <laughs> it's because you're in Russia. <laughs> Stop. Anyway, the Kremlin has uh, confirmed that Tucker Carlson did complete an interview with Vladimir Putin, President Putin of uh, of Russia. And, and so the question is, how do we feel about all this? How do we feel about this, Sean? How do you feel about uh, Tucker going over to the Kremlin? Look. I mean, Tucker's going to Tucker. I mean, it's, it's a what, verb. That's it. What, what you, what you going to do? I mean, Jared? I, yeah, I do think, like, look, I think Tucker knows who he is and knows what he's doing on the, like, larger scale. If we were to remove him, like, what's the, look, obviously, I think, you know, there's some sort of, like, journalistic, you know, necessity to to do these sorts of things. I think it depend a lot on the questions he asks. Is he going to ask about jailing of journalists and human rights abuses and those sorts of things? Or is he going to lob him softballs about how, you know, patriotism is good or whatever it, it may be. So I think that's, I think that's going to be a big part of it, but I don't, I don't know. I, people hate Tucker because of who Tucker is. And they, this is one of these, like you knew they were going to come out and, have their like uh, predetermined positions on this. It's been rumored for a long time that he was going to do this. I I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting regardless. It will be interesting to watch. Um, but I, I don't know that I have like a deeply held belief on, on the, you know, on if this is good or bad. Courtney. I mean, in what world do you think Tucker is able to ask hard hitting questions? <laughs> And in what world do you think that they didn't pre-approve the questions that he asked? Yeah. I mean, this is just, it's going to be a little charade. He's doing it, I'm sure, just for publicity, I I guess. I just, I don't think that you, anyone in Russia would ever let an American journalist come in there and ask questions that weren't pre-approved or that were in any way, shape, or form considered to put them in a bad light. I I think, I think that... Everything Vladimir Putin does is a psychological operation against the West. And so they judge this, obviously, to be generally beneficial in their quest to make it appear as though that the Ukrainians are the bad guys in this war. And I suspect that's the argument Putin is going to end up making here. And it's certainly an argument that Tucker has made before himself. He believes that we're on the wrong side. You know, he believes that the Ukrainians are bad and we should not be helping them. So my instinct is, A, look, Tucker's a media person. Everything he does is for publicity. I mean, that, that's his job is to get publicity and and this will get massive amounts of views and, and it'll be a, a huge boon to him. Uh, and for Putin, you know, he's going to be able to put his message out into the world that uh, the Ukrainians are bad. Uh, and that the United States has made a terrible mistake in supporting the Ukrainians, and we're the ones that are destabilizing the world. Now, I did read that Tucker had had asked, I think I read that he asked the Ukrainians for an interview with Zelensky. 
which uh, if they granted it would be would be an interesting juxtaposition. We'll see if I don't know that he'll get it, but but he asked for it. So, but it, it, it sort of does put Tucker in an interesting position. I assume other Western journalists have asked for this interview repeatedly for years and haven't gotten it. And so now as the one who's gotten it, uh, the attention on him here is going to be enormous, Joe. Now, I, I think there's two different trains of thought I have right now. One is, as Sean so aptly said, Tucker's going to Tucker. I mean, so Tucker Carlson is not just any other journalist walking or, or pursuing or you know, trying to score the big interview. Um, but then again, it would be it's somewhat naive to think that any news organization or reporter doesn't have their own agenda or they're thinking about what they want to accomplish, you know, during these interviews. The question is, is how how willing are you to be manipulated by that other person? And to what degree are you going to ask the questions, as Courtney suggested, um, that are going to counter that narrative of what they're trying to get across? I'm thinking about because I'm, I'm again, I know that I'm obviously the oldest person here, but I remember Peter Arnett. You know, interviewing Saddam Hussein. I remember on CNN. I remember, uh, I believe it was John Miller uh, from CNN or ABC at the time interviewing Osama bin Laden. Um, and there's all kinds of incorrigible people that many of us don't believe or wouldn't think that they deserve the light of day or an opportunity to represent their anti-American feelings. But at the same time, I think there is a value, and I'll defend my watching of Russia today two years ago. There is a value at some point to understanding the other party's perspective and what they're telling their own people. And, uh, you know, there's a window there. I'm, I, I guess I'm confident enough in my own beliefs and my own principles and in America that I can withstand listening to someone else's arguments. I'm not saying, but the, the question there becomes, is it is it a situation to say, give them a, you know, an opportunity to, to speak and we can make our own decisions? Or is it a situation where, and clearly, I think, Courtney, as you suggested, that, and, and you did too, Scott, this is manipulation and this is an opportunity. You know, Putin is going to have the upper hand in any interview. And the very fact that he's going to get this broadcast all across uh, the world, especially to an American audience, you know, he's he's going to win just by having this done in the first place. Speaking of, speaking of manipulation, and yes. before we get to our Super Bowl picks, can I just update the listeners on something that happened to us last week. Oh, I haven't. Yes, yes you, talk, you, you mentioned this to me, but I didn't know what the latest is. So if you were listening to the Flyover Pod last week, you heard us do a segment about E. Jean Carroll, who went on, who obviously won a, a great judgment against Donald Trump, $83 million. And then she went on with her lawyer to the Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that we routinely play clips of cable news shows and what people say on those shows. We always say where we got it. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's routine. Uh, and, and the clip of E. Jean Carroll on Rachel Maddow, where she was talking about how she was going to take the money and, uh, you know, go on a vacation and a shopping spree and get Rachel Maddow an apartment and blah, blah, blah. It went viral. It was viral on X. I mean, it, millions and millions and millions of views. It was viral. So we played it on the show. And we talked about how this was a terrible posture. That this made it look like this whole thing was a an operation to take down Trump more than a than a legitimate claim. Anyway, we had it. We had a, a conversation about it after Jared. Our producer here uploaded this into the normal podcasting channels. I was listening to a replay of our show. 
And when we got to that segment, the entire clip of E. Jean Carroll on Rachel Maddow had been eliminated from the show. Not by us, but by people, I guess, that you upload these things to, Jared. Can you take yeah. it from here and tell me what happened? Yeah, so I have reached out to our hosting platform. So a little behind the scenes, we sort of upload to a platform that it goes out to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and there on, and, you know, whatever, any other platform you guys listen to the show on. I have confirmed it's not our hosting platform. So leave that up to, uh, you know, wherever you were listening to the podcast on must have worked with somebody to scrub this from their channels. So uh, you're saying you're saying that once it got to Apple or Spotify, Spotify or other, then those those those, ne- those people then censored yes our podcast yes and removed that clip yeah and why did they do it? Own conspiracy theory here. Yeah, well, here's what I don't understand. It happened on live television. The clip has been regurgitated on social media. Yeah. Tens of millions of times. We obviously are not the largest podcast in the world, and we are not the principal distributor of any information. So what I am wondering is, how in the world did they land upon us and decide that they don't want E. Jean Carroll's stupidity? Like, Why did it get removed from our show, but seems to be circulating on the internet all over? But we don't know where it hasn't shown up, where perhaps other podcasts have played it, mm-hmm. and it also has been AI or whatever has scrubbed it. Also, just to point out, because if I'm a listener and I'm thinking, well, wait a second, maybe it's a copyright claim. This, to be clear, and as Scott pointed out, this has been repeated across many much news media, uh, and it's under what's called there's a fair use doctrine. Yeah, and fair use is a legal doctrine where you can use otherwise copyrighted works in limited ways without permission or payment for comment, news reporting, research. This is, this is very, very common. And so I, this is, this is egregious for a platform to unilaterally go in and do that. And does make you wonder then as far as, you know, big government or whomever else is, is out there, big corporate media, you know, what else is being scrubbed that we don't not aware of. Well, here, here's the problem uh, is that, for, well, first of all, the problem with what E. Jean Carroll said on the show is that it's going to cause real issues on appeal. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, that's obviously it was a PR debacle. But here's the problem I have, and that is, what do we do now? I mean, you asked our poster, our plat- our platform, and they say it's not them. So what do we do now, Jared? Do I have to send a letter to? So I've, to I've reached out Apple? to Apple Podcasts <laughs> as well um, and haven't heard. I have a ticket in with them. And uh, so we'll see. Scott, uh, I think you need to reach out to Tim Apple. <laughs> I'm going to take a bite out of Tim Apple is what I'm going to do here. Well, I I want to see I want to try. I want to I want to stay on this trail, Jared, because mm-hmm. I do. I do sort of want to see where this leads, because I, I get the feeling that the minute that that clip happened and it went viral, I, I get the feeling that the powers that be the yeah. whoever out there was like, we got to we've got to eliminate this. And I, you just wonder what phone calls and emails were sent at the highest levels of information distribution in this country. Like you've got to eliminate this from as many podcasts as you can. I, I, which honestly, 
is uh, is something else. So we'll we'll keep you updated on that. But if you were listening to the show last week and it sounded weird because it was like we were talking about a clip that you didn't hear, it's because it was removed by someone after we uploaded it and we we're trying to find out who. So Jared, I feel yeah, like we need to just upload it again and see. <laughs> yeah, I, I can mean, plug it in. We, I'll Let's plug in the same Let's clip right here. Right now? We'll see. Right. Let's do it right now. So, so here's the clip that was censored last week. MSNBC, E. Jean Carroll, talking to Rachel Maddow. You've talked about using some of Trump's money that you're about to get um, to help shore up women's rights. Do you know what that might be, what that might look like? Yes, Rachel. Yes. Tell me. I had such such great ideas (laughs) for all the good I'm going to do with this money. First thing, Rachel... You and I are going to go shopping. We're going to get completely new wardrobes, new shoes, motorcycle for Crowley, new fishing rod for Robbie. Rachel, what do you want? Penthouse? It's yours, Rachel. Penthouse and uh, France? You want France? You want to go fishing in France? No? Oh, all right, all right. Okay. That's a joke. (laughs) Now. As we record this show today, we have no idea whether you just heard the clip or not. <laughs> and so if you didn't hear a clip just now of E. Jean Carroll on Rachel Maddow, we know it was removed again. So we're now doing a, a live experiment to see whether this clip is taken out for a second week in a row. All right, we got to get out of here. Yeah. I think instead of seen red heard, we should do Super Bowl picks. But don't everybody jump in at once. Sean, <laughs> what, what's the what's the prevailing uh, opinion in oh, Montana? I, I think in Montana, the big sky country, I think they're going to be – all over the Chiefs, I would think, but I don't know if Sean has become infected by that. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't spent a lot of time discussing what people on the ground here in Big Sky Country uh, <laughs> think about the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, there, there are some people who are, uh, you know, uh, expats from California that moved here uh, to uh, enjoy uh, this this red state. So I, there's probably some more 49ers fans than you would think, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the Chiefs. I think uh, I think that uh, uh, the Chiefs deserve this, and uh, you know I, I kind of go back and forth on this whole Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift thing about whether or not I I think it's good or bad. But I tend to think that like the idea of this this you know courting this romance going on is kind of good for the country. I think it's kind of a good a good thing. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the Chiefs. All, All right, right, Jared. So Jared, yeah. So Sean has bought into the psyop. So. That's good to know. Uh, That's um, right. I, if I was a betting man, I would probably bet on the Chiefs. I would, I'll be rooting for the 49ers. And really, just to be transparent, it, Mahomes is the only guy I see chasing or catching Brady. And as a Pats fan, I love that he is the greatest of all time. I don't want anybody to ever be in that conversation with him. So I think Mahomes is great. Andy Reid is great. But I, I still love the idea of Belichick and Brady being the greatest of all time. So I'll be rooting for the 49ers, but if I was betting, I would bet on the Chiefs. Courtney. I'm going to go with Taylor Swift. That's my Who's, pick. Who does he play for? I'm oh, Taylor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to say the Chiefs are going to win because of Mahomes. I don't want them to win, though. I want the 49ers to win, but I would bet on the Chiefs. Scott, I'll say that. Uh, Interesting. I think that. Uh, it comes down to turnovers. I think that uh, all the pressure is on the Chiefs as the favorites, and I think that there will be one or two key turnovers and interception that Mahomes will throw, and 49ers defense will come around. I love Christian McCaffrey of uh, the Niners. He's an old-school 
hard nosed running back, and I and I think he'll make a big difference there as well. So I I, I think the pressure is on Kansas City, and I think the Niners prevail on an upset, Scott. Okay, I'm I'm just I'm not a uh, a gambler, so I went to DraftKings, and I'm looking at the odds. It says. The San Francisco 49ers are favorites to win the Super Bowl at minus 125 odds. The Kansas City Chiefs are two-point underdogs against the Niners. The over-under total is 47 and a half. Does that mean anything to anybody? I don't. Yes. So (laughs) if you were to bet $100 on the Chiefs and they won, you'd win $125. Okay. The Chiefs have to... If they were to lose by one point, you would still win if you bet on them. And okay. the total points scored in the game is that 46 or whatever. So if 47 the Chiefs and score a half is the, yeah. 30 and the Niners score 35 and you bet the over on that, you'd win. So let me ask a question. Is this a good bet? Like if, if I mean, would it be a good bet to bet $100? Well, what if you bet $100 on the Niners and they win? Then what happens? It's all it, it's you'd win. So it's the difference. Think of everything from 100 going both ways. So you'd have to bet 100 to win 100. Or you'd have to bet 125 to win 100. You have to bet 100 to win 125 the other way. I am so glad that I'm not part of this conversation because Scott would be skewering me left and right. <laughs> uh, no, it's not a great bet. It's basically they're even. It's essentially a pick them. They're my, minus two is not. Worth All really right. betting on. I'm going to be for the Niners, not because I dislike uh, the 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 romance and the courtship, but uh, the tight end for the Niners, George Kittle, was my tight end on my league champion Wolf Blitzers fantasy football team. So I've been watching a lot of Niners this year to see what Kittle was going to do. So I'm going to stick with the Niners, uh, and uh, we'll go with them Sunday. Fantastic. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Jared, Courtney, and Sean. Great seeing you. Welcome back to the Flyover Country. Sean, next time, we're we're doing this via Zoom. We can all see, and Sean is not wearing a cowboy hat. Next time, Sean, I expect to see you in a gigantic 10-gallon hat. I want to see it. We need a window open, too, so we can see that big sky. You need to to see me in my big winter coat and my boots. Thanks, John. We got, we, got, we right. got snow overnight. We're getting another four to six inches, I think, tomorrow. So I'm going to try out skiing for the first time this weekend. So hopefully I don't end up in a cast. Scott, we'll be watching for you on CNN. Good luck. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. This has been Flyover Country with Scott Jets. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.